The book of the prophet Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel, and indeed there are a remarkable number of prophetic utterances in this book that show up in the New Testament and resonate with our Christian belief. The last third or so of this book is a long and startlingly optimistic meditation on the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem after its destruction by the Babylonians in the year 587 BC. And I remark on Isaiah's optimism because there were other prophets writing around this time, including Ezekiel and Ezra, and uh, these two authors reflect a certain kind of skittishness about how to avoid a similar disaster in the future. This skittishness was quite excusable if you know a little bit about the circumstances. Ezra tells us the heartbreaking story of the return of many of the exiles from Babylon. And when they see their beloved Jerusalem in ruins, uh, they break into weeping. They, They can't deal with the magnitude of the destruction. Where do you start rebuilding something like this? It took years and years, decades to build the city. How do you rebuild it, especially when you have no resources? The whole economy has been destroyed. The first attempts at rebuilding the temple were clearly a disappointment to many. And so again, it's quite remarkable that Isaiah would announce so forthrightly, look directly in front of you. The Lord is restoring Zion. He's rebuilding the temple. Isaiah admits that things are pretty bad. He says in the next line, break out in song, O ruins of Jerusalem. Now the historical fact is, as I've mentioned, things were not quite as rosy as Isaiah hoped, even if they weren't quite as dire as others thought. Zion, the temple mount, was the meeting place between God and man. And its initial destruction and the people's expulsion from Jerusalem and Judah parallel in an important way the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. This was the place where, at the beginning, man and woman uh, conversed familiarly with God, and their expulsion from this place meant alienation from God, as did the expulsion from the temple in Jerusalem. And so calling to mind what Zion is, we discover to our delight that Isaiah's prophecy was by no means overly optimistic. For if the Jerusalem temple was the meeting place of God and man, it was so only imperfectly. What we celebrate today is the meeting place, the reconciliation of God and man. They're reconnecting, but not in a large public building. Rather, the end of our exile from Eden comes about in the meeting of God and man in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We discover that from all eternity, we were made for God, that human nature, even the very tiny body of an infant, can contain God. So how does this happen exactly? How is this our salvation? What does this mean? And here I'd like to uh, come or bring to my aid the meditation of St. John's Gospel. All things were made, he tells us, 
through God's word, his logos. This Greek word, logos, the word that John uses, is similar to the Hebrew word, dabar, and both of them have many meanings in addition to uh, our idea of a word. In both languages, it can mean a concept or rationale, an account, or a reason. Our English word logic derives from this idea of logos. What this means is that in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, God is rational. And indeed, all rationality derives from a participation in God's own reasons for things, his logos. When we look at the laws of physics, for example, or the laws of biology, or grammar, uh, or beauty, uh, how aesthetics work, anytime we can make sense out of the world, we are participating in some way in God's reasoning about how things are, what things, how they relate to each other, what they mean. When God speaks in the opening chapter of Genesis and creates by speaking, this indicates that his world, the cosmos, is a rational place. It makes sense. Now, a lot of times it doesn't make sense to us, and that indicates our alienation from God. So, again, how does the incarnation of Jesus Christ reconcile us and make things make sense again? Let me back up. We rational human beings can intuit many of the laws of the cosmos. We can even reason toward God and know something about him. But before the Incarnation, there was always something veiled about the meaning of God's world, about God's intentions and actions. It was hard to see what he was getting at at times. And again, this is a reflection of our alienation, our distance from God. The coming of God's Logos in the flesh means that the unveiling, the full revelation of God's communicated meaning is this tiny infant in his entire life as a man. This man, this baby, is God's definitive word to us, and what a comfort it is. In contemplating the life of Christ from conception to his death on the cross, in frequenting Holy Communion, receiving him in the body and blood, of him, in learning how to see all things in the light of Christ, we discover more and more deeply God's love for us and for all being communicated through all things. We discover our destiny to be united with Christ by the same Spirit who overshadowed Mary, and so to see reality with the eyes of faith. I mentioned above that Isaiah's historical prophecy was not quite accurate, but his spiritual prophecy, the real meaning of these words, was exactly right. In the boy Jesus of Nazareth, we really do see God rebuilding his meeting place between himself and us. We really see God's salvation with our own eyes. And to say that this is a spiritual way of looking at things is not at all to deny anything material, but to see in them their real meaning, to see in all of God's creation, his communication to us. 
to understand ourselves anew as children of God in the flesh, the very flesh that God's Son made his own. This renewal of our minds is a gift from God, and our celebration today is a way of worthily receiving this gift. And may we live out of this gift of understanding and of faith more and more throughout the coming year.